So far this month, our Authors in August series for Rule Breaker Investing has introduced us to an author who walked from Washington, D.C. to New York City and wrote about it, an entrepreneur who parlayed his skills learned as an Army Ranger into helping others sell their own businesses the right way, to a mathematical genius that, well, I hope we talked enough about his book, but it was too much fun to go off the rails with Jordan last week as well. And now, this week, we get to talk to and learn from a world-class novelist who last joined me on Rule Breaker Investing five years ago. Five years ago, this very week. Amor Tolls, quite a rule breaker himself, a man who stepped away from a Wall Street research desk in his mid-40s to become a critically acclaimed novelist. In 2011, published Rules of Civility. In 2016, A Gentleman in Moscow. And does this happen every five years? In 2021, it was the Lincoln Highway, the main subject of our podcast this week. Let's learn from a man who sold five-plus million books, shall we? Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It is authors in August. It is Amor Tolls. You heard me at the top. I don't think I need to go too much more into this Phenomenal writer, just delighted to be joined again by Amor five years ago to the very week that we talked about his previous novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. Here we are about to talk about The Lincoln Highway. Now, many have not yet read The Lincoln Highway. It did come out in 2021. It's already been a fantastic bestseller, but the vast majority of people hearing me today, which would be true of almost any audience other than AmorTollsBookClub.com, will not actually have read this book yet. So just like last time, I'm not going to spoil his wonderful novel. Well, up to a point. We will, of course, discuss Lincoln Highway and minorly spoil some of it in order to inform, and I would say entice, listeners like you who may not have read it yet, but only to inform and entice, not over-explain, certainly not spoil or ruin. So that's the one ground rule of what I expect to be a very rich and wide-ranging conversation you're about to enjoy this week. I'm rubbing my hands together, looking forward to welcoming back Amor Tolls to Fooldom. Amor Tolls, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. David, thanks for having me back. Ralph Waldo Emerson used to hail friends he'd not seen for a long time with the greeting, what's become clear to you since we last Met. Amor, what's become clear to you since we last met? Not enough, first of all. <laughs> I, I love that Emerson asked that of people. I, I would I, I definitely want to adopt that as an excellent opener. Do I've done it. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think uh w one thing that's on my mind, I guess, is uh I recently was on the set of A Gentleman in Moscow, uh which was being shot in uh Manchester, England. It's an eight-hour miniseries starring Ewan McGregor as the Count. This is uh, my second novel being, you know, brought to the screen. Yeah. And at any rate, in the course of the last year, I've had varied levels of involvement with the production, mostly limited. Um, but going and watching the team that is working to put this, to bring this story to life on the screen is is sort of humbling and awe-inspiring as you see the 
head of costumes, the head of makeup, the head of set design, the head of props, uh, investing themselves in the story and using their craft to try to mm. bring the book to life. And, and watching them to work together is very impressive. And, and what I can tell you, what I now see more clearly than I did uh, in the past is that as it turns out, I am not a collaborator. That's what I see more clearly. Huh. You know, the, the world of movie making is so collaborative intensive in that no element of it is going to function effectively without everybody's participation. The vast majority of participants are artists or artisans in some degree. And so are, are there because they can improve the outcome through artistic decision-making, whether that's behind the lights or as I say, in the set design or in the performances themselves. And so to survive in that field, you really have to be at all times open to receiving criticism, prepared to give feedback in a good mood, despite the fact that, you know, <laughs> that the other people are, are, are slowing the thing down or, or doing it the wrong way or whatever those things. And, you know, in, in novel creation, it is, it is a, an organization of one, you know, at least in the writing phase, right? And, and so, and, and, and it turns out that, <laughs> that my personality is better suited to the sitting down by myself and doing the work without interruption, without interference. Um, and, 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 you know, so that's where I belong. I belong. Now, now, I should say that, that, that bringing a book out into the world so that it reaches readers becomes a collaborative, you know, process. And, and so, you, you know, that I am, I'm, I'm pretty collaborative on that end. You know, what is the cover going to be, uh, you know, working with the independent bookstores, responding to readers. There's, there's a collaborative element, all of that, which I'm, I'm, that I can handle. It's, it's the, it's the, the artistic creation itself that, yeah, yeah I think I'm a, I'm a one man show. <laughs> well, it makes a lot of sense as you, as you explain it. And it really is the creation of the art that is so fundamentally different. It takes a village to make a movie. It seems like it takes an adult to write a novel, but the creation of the product after the art, maybe it does take a village to, to make a novel. Well, thank you for that, Amor. And I remember when we talked five years ago, it felt as if at the time it was imminent. Was it Ray <laughs> Fiennes? I thought that A Gentleman in Moscow was imminent on TV. So there've been some changes over the course of five years. There was something called COVID in the meantime. Yes. Um, this this has been a what a long strange trip it's been. Yeah, well, you know the 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 novel came out in 2016, and it looks like the series will be out next spring, which is okay. just seven and a half years, and actually that's about average. Uh, and you can do a lot; it can be a lot longer than seven and a half years to see a book ultimately come to screen. And um, so, so we're kind of right on track industry wise, but it, yeah. it is it is not uh, an industry that that moves by leaps and bounds usually. Well, a lot of us are looking forward to that Showtime production next spring. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, let's move to a, another book that you've probably sold movie rights to. That would be your most recent book, The Lincoln Highway. You said last time when we talked that, quote, if I had set out to write a bestseller, you would never pick the story of a guy trapped in a hotel for 30 years, end quote. Now, I'm wondering if you'd say the same thing about The Lincoln Highway, a novel about an adventure across the first Trans-American Highway, and yet not necessarily in the direction your reader first thinks. Amor, were you trying to write a bestseller this time? <laughs> uh, no, and uh, you know, and I, I actually, I, I was very when I handed in the manuscript for the Lincoln Highway, I told my uh, 
publisher and editor at Viking Penguin, where I've been since the beginning. I, you know, I said, uh, I think this is great. I'm very happy with it. Uh, but certainly it's, it's not going to come close to having the reception that a gentleman in Moscow has had. I mean, and, and they said, okay, you know, that's fine. And, but, you know, but my publisher came back afterwards. He's like, Amor, I think, I think you're nuts. I think this could have a, you know, e- easily has a, have this big a reception uh, for readers. And so, you know, my hesitation, I wasn't just being coy about it with him. I think that for those who haven't read The Lincoln Highway, it's set in 1954 in America, uh, and a young man uh, has just been released from a juvenile prison. Uh, he's being driven home by the warden to the family farm. While our hero, Emmett, was doing time, his father has died. The family's in bankruptcy. His mother is long gone. And uh, he's sort of ready to start his life anew by you know, getting his eight-year-old brother and heading west to California. But it turns out two friends from the uh, juvenile prison have hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. And when the warden drives away, they present themselves and everything starts to go in the wrong direction for our hero. And the story then heads east instead to New York City. <laughs> and the whole thing only lasts about 10 days now, or exactly 10 days, excuse me. Um, and now I say when I would finish it, you know, why, why did I think it was not going to have the reception of a gentleman in Moscow or you know, certainly a different one? Well, for one thing, the the story is told from eight different perspectives. So on individual days, you are shifting from perspective to perspective to perspective, which means that it's in eight voices. You're you're piecing together the course of events by piecing together the different uh, takes and and the different what, what is witnessed by the different individuals. And you have to kind of maintain a sense of these different personalities um, and so, frankly, I felt that that would be uh, off-putting to, for many readers. Uh, you know, the pleasure of the John Moscow is you're immersing yourself in sort of the single psychology and getting to see the world unfold through that lens. And, and uh, this is a very different reading experience as a result. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, um, the, you know, that ended up being uh, what, what I thought was going to be a drawback in a way for many readers, ended up being uh, providing readers different access points to the books in a book yeah. in a way that I did not anticipate, you know, where you have readers who come say, Oh, I love that book because, you know, I, you know, Duchess is just, you know, the greatest character. I love Duchess. And you have other people who are like, I can't stand Duchess, you know, yep. but Billy is my favorite character, you know, and our Sally is just, the world is just like it is like Sally describes it. And so that's sort of that quality of having different perspectives. It does sort of change the way readers engage with it. And I guess the other thing is that, there's a darker component to the Lincoln Highway. I won't give away anything, but about it. But it is it is certainly uh, has uh, some darker aspects to it, some unhappier aspects to it uh, as a part of the fabric of the lives of these characters. And and so I thought that there were some readers who who enjoyed General Moscow who would turn to this and say, "Well, you know, this is a different thing. It's it's not as sophisticated. It's it doesn't have the elegance of a, of the aristocrat from the 19th century. It's a bunch of 18 year old, you know, thick headed 18 year olds, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and they're they're you know, and they're making bad choices, you know. And I thought that, that all that would put off. Well, you know, as it turned out, that that was people were fine with that too. Yeah, I think Viking Penguin's pretty happy with your sales. I think it's clocked in already over a million sold. So That's congratulations, true. just Thank two you. years later, just phenomenal. When did the idea for this book first come to you? And and. And why is the highway so central to the novel that it gets its marquee name up in lights? Okay. Well, those are two big questions. So I'm, I'll start with the first. And I, 
written fiction since I was a kid and I wrote fiction in high school and college and graduate school. And over the course of my life, ideas for stories or books have tended to present themselves in very simple form, uh, a sentence, a, a small conceit, uh, a little notion. Um, in the case of General Moscow, it was a guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. You know, that's what suddenly I was thinking about while I was in a hotel myself. Yep. And, uh, and in this case, the Lincoln Highway, it's, it's pretty much built in what I just described as the opening, which is that I had this idea of, oh, yeah, a kid being driven home from juvenile prison and two friends hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. You know, that's where I started. And now when I have a notion like that, if it really intrigues me and grabs me, I just can't stop thinking about it. And over the course of, uh, I'll start immediately with a very strong sense of a couple of particulars. So in the case of a gentleman in Moscow, within minutes, uh, I, I start with a guy trapped in a hotel, but within minutes, I thought, oh yeah, great. It could be in Russia. He could be an aristocrat, sentenced to house arrest in a fancy hotel. The story could span from the revolution to the Cold War. Like all that was very quick. And then, then you go in this process of beginning to imagine it in greater and greater detail. So in the case of the Lincoln Highway, yes, almost instantaneously, I was like in the 50s, returns to the Midwest, farm in bankruptcy, uh, 10-day story, you know, uh, two friends from New York. All that was very quick. But then over the course of what will be a couple of years, uh, before I start writing, I call it sort of the design phase, I'll start filling notebooks imagining all the various elements of the story. Where do they go? Who's there? Who are these people? What are they like? What are their backgrounds? What's the setting of the scene? What does it look like in great detail? What happens in every chapter? Um, what are people thinking? What are they feeling? What are they saying uh, as a part of it? And, and over a couple of years, I'll build up to the point where I know the story uh, pretty intimately from beginning to end. And only at that point would I then outline it and start to write uh, chapter one. Do you have a do you have a small coterie of friends? Do you have a spouse or partner? Do you kick these things around with people over the course of years, or is this a solitary exercise with your nose in your notebooks? I do have friends. I do have a spouse. First of all, for the record, <laughs> for the record, but no, I don't talk about my work with wow. others. You know, so I, I I'm pretty private about the work until I'm done with the first draft, and and the and I don't share. Uh, my writing until I'm done with the first draft with anybody, including my wife or agent or editor. It'll, so I wait till I'm done. The highway question. <laughs> yeah, the highway part. So the, the irony on this one is that uh, in these notebooks that I'm keeping over this period of years, uh, the, the, the book was originally titled Unfinished Business, which is, uh, for those who've read the book will recall, it's something that uh, comes up in the story uh, Duchess gets very interested in the nature of unfinished business. When you've got this debt you owe, or you owe, or or you, you've got a debt you're going to collect. Either way, it's unfinished business. And Duchess sort of feels that um, he kind of gets on the track of trying to settle old scores, uh, either whether he owe, owes them the debt or whether he's collecting it. Not necessarily financial, of course. I'm talking about in a moral sense. Mm -hmm. um, so it was called unfinished business. And uh, in the story. Uh, while I was designing it, I knew the characters were going to leave the farm on the second, you know, the, the third day and take a right to head to New York instead of a left to California. But at no point did I know what road they were going to take during those years. And it just said Route X. That's what they would drive on. But then when I started writing the book, I eventually had to pin down the exact road because that would actually potentially have bearing. Maybe if they went through Chicago, I might want to include a, a night in Chicago or, you know, are they be going through cornfields or not? And so... I 
get out the map. I found the road that looked perfect from the middle of Nebraska to New York City. It starts out as Route 30. Uh, but in the map, it said in small print, Route 30, formerly known as the Lincoln Highway. And I was like, what is the Lincoln Highway? And I began to do a little delving into the Lincoln Highway and everything I found out about it amazed me. I mean, it's this incredible thing. And I was like, oh my God, not only is this an incredible uh, history of this road, but it is in many ways a perfect metaphor for many of the themes which are now clearly built into the story I'm telling. And, and so like that, I changed the name to the Lincoln Highway. I mean, that day. And so I won't, you can go to amortolls.com and there's a complete history of the Lincoln Highway there for those who get interested because it's not all in the book. Certainly not. Mm. It's, it is, but there is this fascinating history, but I will give you a couple of the quick highlights. And that is that in 1910, as the car was coming of age in the United States, there were no highways really in the modern sense. No roads had been developed to go from one municipality to another municipality far away. So like from say De Boston to Denver, there was no road from Boston to Denver. Um, the trains went from Boston to Denver. Mm. And between Boston and Denver, you would have roads in each town, around each town or each city. But once you left the city out into the country, the roads would kind of fade out. And then there were no hotels, no gas stations, no restaurants. So cross-country traveling by car in 1915 was very difficult. And you had to carry with you water, gas, food, tents, you know, repair parts. They looked like polar expeditions. And in uh, 1915, at that time, only about 150 people would drive across the United States in any given year. And a guy who had made a fortune selling a brand new light for the automotive industry named Carl Fisher from Indianapolis uh, decided, and he had sold his company and made hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, you know what? There should be a highway that crosses the United States from sea to shining sea. Hmm. And the government had no interest in doing it. The federal government was not involved in roads at all. And so he decided to do it himself. And he raised money from the public and from famous people and from corporations. And uh, around 1915, he built this road that begins in Times Square, New York City, goes all straight across the country through 12 states and ends up in Lincoln Park in San Francisco overlooking the Pacific. And the road was such uh, an immediate success, in essence, uh, that within five years, 20,000 Americans a year were driving across the country. Now, having said that, only 150 were doing it before the road was built. So wow. It kind Just of launched. Phenomenal. Yeah. It launched this whole new way in which Americans were seeing the country, uh, both as tourists, but also obviously had impact for commercial, commercial development, for uh, ability for people to move for jobs or to visit family. Like it, it really had this big impact. And it was the most famous road in America by far in, uh, from in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And then it was made obsolete uh, when Eisenhower built the highway systems in the 1950s. But you can still drive the Lincoln Highway from Times Square to San Francisco. And in many cases, it's a rural road with one lane going in either direction. It's a lot more fun. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's a great way. It's, it's an old school way to cross the country. You know, when, when, when time is not of the essence, uh, it's so a lovely Carl way. Carl Fisher, a name to me, and he yes. lost to the mists of time. Yes. Is there a statue of Carl Fisher anywhere in America? Oh, that's a good, you know, I think there is, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to remember where, I, where I've seen mention of it. But I'll tell you, because Carl Fisher, having invented the, his lamp on the car was a 90% of the cars in the United States for, for a long time. So that, okay, that was number one. He was born in poverty. 
and he, at 13, he dropped out of school. Mm. And, uh, you know, initially he sold newspapers and train stations and things like that. But um, so he builds this great fortune. Once he sells the company, he gets bored. And the first thing he does is he starts racing cars. He gets loves racing cars and he thinks that it's too unsophisticated uh, an environment. Everybody's racing on dirt roads. So he built the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Wow. And so that started to attract uh, racers from all across the, the, the Northeast who would come to race on the track because it was really the only serious track in the country. And then Fisher says, you know, I bet now that we've got the track and the runner, the drivers, uh, if we had a significant prize and we built stands, I bet people would come to watch. And so he did that. And that's the Indian and the, the Indy 500. He launched Just- the Indy 500. And the first year he did it, I think over 50,000 people came to see the race. And this is like, you know, like back in like, as I say, around 1915, yeah. then board, he gets, starts vacationing in Florida and, uh, he, he's there in Miami on the water. But at the time, Miami, the city of Miami ended on the, the edge of the Biscayne Bay. And then you had the Biscayne Bay and then there was a barrier Island and then the Atlantic ocean and Carl Fisher realized, he said, you know what? The barrier Island is a better place to spend the winter because you got the breeze, you got the ocean, you can look back on the, on the Miami skyline. And so he ends up buying or really controlling a big chunk of this bear Island. And he builds a hotel there and that becomes Miami beach. And so like he makes his third fortune or whatever. So anyways, he's an amazing American and, and, and Motley Fool listeners will not be surprised to learn that, uh, he died penniless you know, hmm. because, that, that happens in the American dream too, right? You know, you start with nothing, you build a fortune, build a second fortune, build a third fortune. And then the combination of uh, misguided developments, he tried, to, he tried to recreate Miami Beach in Montauk and it failed, nobody came. Uh, he lost a ton of money in the 29 crash. And he, was a, he had enormous amounts of real estate in uh, Miami and it was wiped out in a hurricane. So in a, in a kind of an, in a eight year period, the three, those three events took him from being worth, uh, you know, at the peak, probably a half a billion dollars in today's terms to zero. That is just a remarkable story. And I had no idea we were going to geek out on Carl Fisher, but that's why we do this podcast. <laughs> that was really well told, Amor. Thank you for sharing that. And None of that's in the book, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, that's, just a, that's a freebie. That's a bonus. That's prize. actually nonfiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but back to the book. This is a ridiculous meta question, but that's why I like to ask it. Uh, the actual title of the book is The Lincoln Highway a novel. So really meta question. Right. Okay. So I'm seeing you. So your body language is like, yeah. So I was going to ask you why add a novel into the official title of your novel? Because on Amazon, it's the Lincoln Highway colon a novel on the cover. It looks like it's just a novel by the author of Gentleman in Moscow. But the the truth is, the truth is, David, and you feel free to cut this question and answer. But that's not me. That's the industry. So anytime, and, and actually the, most novels today have, it says a novel on it, and it is f- from a complete lack of confidence that, th- that the average citizen walking to a big bookstore, picking up the book, will be able to quickly distinguish wow. between what they're looking All at. Right. And yeah. that's particularly true when you have a title like The Lincoln Highway, where someone's like, oh, it's a, it must be a history of The Lincoln Highway. And so they, they so it it is a, it is a an industry thing, not a tolls thing. Thank you for the explanation. It makes sense. What is the most quintessentially American thing about your novel, 
the Lincoln Highway. And what is the most un-American thing? Wow, that's a fascinating question. It's partly about our country, America. And of course, uh, it feels as if you set us up to think this is a great American novel, which which it is. But we're at a time in our country's history where a lot of people have different views of what America's core values are, what we stand for. And I'm just curious your your viewpoint through your novel. All right. Well, let's start with with sort of an essentially American aspect of the story, uh, I, I think, is uh, is tied to the fact that um, the, the the 19 mid 50s are a very interesting time in the United States. The book is set in 54, as I said, and if you think of 1954, what makes it interesting is not what was so much what was happening; it's about what was about to happen. And, and uh, so, 1954, a few weeks before the story begins, is when uh, you have Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, decision of the Supreme Court. And so obviously the civil rights movement has existed in the United States since the inception of the country because we've had slavery since the inception of the country. And so there was there was cause for uh, a battle of civil rights, whether it was, you know, uh, obviously bec- becoming more public and, and more sophisticated over time. Um, but the modern civil rights movement really begins in 1954 with that decision because between the Civil War and 1954, in that hundred-year span, Jim Crow, as we all know, had basically recreated many of the conditions of slavery and codified them as law, such as the whole concept that you know uh, black citizens and white citizens couldn't use the same hotels or restaurants or or sit in the same seats on buses, and uh, you know they a two-class system had been completely codified into law and had become the standard, and that lasted a hundred years. Mm. And Brown versus the Board of Education is the is the case where the Supreme Court finally says, you know what, that does not meet the standards that are guaranteed by our Constitution. Separate is not equal, you know, and that, so you can't use the separate but equal argument. And uh, with that, you then have an acceleration of events. Uh, uh, Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat is within the next eighteen months. The rise of Martin Luther King begins within the next eighteen months, and a decade later, you have the Civil Rights Act. So, as I say. The the modern civil rights movement is really about to take off in 1954. Uh, You can say the same thing about uh, the women's movement. Uh, In the aftermath of the Second World War, there was a big cultural push to put women, take women out of the factories where they'd they'd gotten into the factories during the war and to get them back in the home. And partly there was sort of a government viewpoint on that because they were worried that the if they left the women in the workplace, the returning soldiers would not have a job. And that could be very disruptive to society. You know, setting aside sexist viewpoints, that alone they thought was a problem. But there was obviously a sexism there too. And so there was kind of this cultural encouragement of women to go back into the home, to raise their children, to take advantage of the new appliances and, you know, this whole sort of the, this lockdown version of, of uh, womanhood, which was very, very different, by the way, than what womanhood looked like in the 1920s and 30s in the United States. So it was a, the 50s kind of created a, a new model for, domestic, for domesticating the woman in the family. And um, so the, that's coming out of the Second World War. By the mid-50s, you're beginning to already see uh, the women who are beginning to fight against it. You know, early writing about it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the 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 big feminist movement of the '60s is being launched in the mid '50s. 
The sexual revolution is the same thing. You know, that's going to take off in the 60s, but it's getting underway in the mid 50s. The Kinsey report on female sexuality is uh, it published in the mid 50s. Playboy uh, is launched uh, in right before 1954. You know, so all this is happening. And then you have television and uh, rock and roll. Rock and roll is invented basically in 1954, or you know, what we think of as the modern uh, art form of rock and roll, uh, with rock around the clock generally being seen as, you know, one of the two first songs, rock and roll songs. And then uh, television, which had been launched in the early 50s, but really by 1954 is is, is curving up dramatically so that by, you know, so 1950, it's in 10% of the homes. By 1959, it's in 99% of the homes or something like that. So so all of these in, these things are happening, or as I say, are, are, are gaining steam in 1954. And if you think of those things, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the sexual revolution, rock and roll, television, uh, those cultural forces, which explode in the 60s, dominate in many ways our culture for the next half a century and beyond, you know, right up until the launch of the internet. Those are the major cultural movements. Um, and so, uh, and that's, as I say, that's just happening. So one of the things I, that's, I think interesting about the book in terms of the American context is that this, the, the, so the tradition of America, the way it was seen from the fifties looking back is and then you have kind of what happens next, the next hundred years, and 1955 is 54 is sort of right there on the on the line, and and so in the story you have a lot of the forces that are going to surface in the 60s beginning to percolate for the characters. They don't have uh, the civil rights movement uh, language to articulate hmm. why as a black American they're unhappy. They don't have the the Sally doesn't have the feminist movement's language to articulate her frustrations of her life and home, but the frustrations are there and the, the imbalance is there. And, and so, uh, you know, so anyway, so that's a part of the story too is, and that's true for kind of all the characters are, are wrestling with some ways, uh, how to be a modern American and, uh, and what they deserve and what they're going to have to fight for and those kinds of things. You've just done a fantastic job evoking a time that predates you and me, uh, yeah. although not by too much. And, uh, and thank you for, uh, it's almost like you studied the era and wrote a book set in that time that you have all the knowledge of all those different forces. Maybe one of the themes to me of The Lincoln Highway, a novel, is that it has many different swirling themes, many different voices. You mentioned your eight different characters, such a different approach taken with this book. And I'm curious, and you're mixing first and third person narration. So some of the characters like Duchess, and again, for those who've not read the novel, and, and if at least a million of us have, that means there are about 300 or so million who haven't yet That's true. read it. So looked at from that point of view, let's re- remember that Duchess is a guy. And most of us, when we hear the name in an, a random podcast interview, might be wondering, uh, who is that woman? It's 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 a man. It allowed you. You wrote that voice in the first person throughout yeah. the book, Amor. It, to my, to me, it allowed you to rock your inner Damon Runyon. You had a lot of fun with that voice, but that was just one of, again, eight different perspectives. To me, that's a very innovative approach. I think of you as a risk taker with your art. Um, did you intend that from the very beginning? You already referenced that that earlier, the, the extreme contrast with the gentleman in Moscow. Uh, I, I'm especially thinking of the different moral codes that run through these, these characters. 
How easy is it to create eight different personae and really write within their point of view in a single book? Uh, well, thanks. Um, I, I guess the, let me say two things about it. The first thing is that uh, I, some, some writers work on a novel and then they're, they're interested in delving fur, further into that arena. Now, first, most, most uh, genre fiction is built that way. If you're writing mysteries, if you're writing suspense stories, uh, you, you are often taking a character and if in a successful story, then revisiting that character in another set of circumstances, you know, like the Jack Reacher series, or, yeah. you know, John Le Carré writing about us, George Smiley or, or what have you. And, uh, and there can be both great satisfaction for the writer and the reader in following that thread from book to book to book. And, and I am not that kind of writer, right? So, <laughs> you know, I'm from the school who I really enjoy leaving one project. And when I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next, the, the more ways that that project is different than the last, the Love better, it. you know, Love and, it. and, uh, you know, and, and the reason why, and I appreciate you, you defining it as, as an aspect of risk-taking, I, because I, I, I think that's right. That's part of the attraction. And that's really because the, the risk is, um, the payoff is that it forces me as the writer, when I shift from one kind of story to another story, uh, it, it, it forces me to revisit every aspect of my craft. So a gentleman in Moscow, it's going to be 30 year story. It's a sophisticated guy who's very cultural. It's going to be, you know, set in Russia. It's, you're never going to leave the hotel. You know, that, that's a set of rules. And to write that story well, you, you style uh, your, your dialogue, your descriptions of, of environments, meaning, meaning settings, the, the tone of it, the metaphors that show up, the allegories and illusions that show up all grow out of fulfilling the shape of that story, the tone of that story, the psychology of that main character. Well, suddenly you shift to this story, which is all 18 year old boys in the fifties predominantly and uh, for and 10 days and it's only 10 days. Well, that requires that you revisit everything. You can, you have to do dialogue differently, setting differently, a different sense of, of similes and metaphors. The, the vocabulary is going to be different. And then you say, well, we're going to actually do it across a series of different points of view. And each of those points of view is going to have its own tone, its own semantics, its own vocabulary that helps give the reader a sense of the inner life of that character. And, and so that's what's fun, right, for me, is that, is that it means that I, I'm, not going to be, I'm not going to get to mine what I've sort of tried to master in the last book. I'm going to have to start from scratch uh, in certain ways and develop new sets of skills to serve this story. Mm. Now, in the case of the points of view, uh, when I started the book, uh, and throughout the design phase, it was always going to be a story from two perspectives, Emmett and Duchess. And for those of you who read the book, you'll remember that the first chapter, day one, you hear from Emmett, and then you hear from Duchess. And the second day, you hear from Emmett, and you hear from Duchess when they go into town and there's the fight. And that's the way the whole book was going to be. And I got about uh, maybe a third into the first draft. Mm. And I suddenly felt like, you know, I know Wooly so well. I know Sally. I know Billy so well. And uh, the reader is never going to have a full understanding of their inner life if we only hear from Duchess and uh, Emmett. Because du Duchess and Emmett could describe those friends, but they'll never really be able to take us right into the heart of, of those individuals and, and how they see the world, their, what makes them happy or sad, mm -hmm. et cetera, and um, how, you know, how they think. Uh, what they think is right and wrong. 
And so I kind of went back to page one and I said, all right, let's take this existing outline and all the plans and rethink it where uh, we're going to hear from more than two perspectives. And when you're doing that, Amor, is it frustrating for you that you have to undo <laughs> or are you excited yeah. and you're like this is, or, or somewhere in between? Yeah. You know, there is a uh, frustration of that. So because usually the moment of, of revelation comes <laughs> about in conjunction with feeling like this isn't working yet, you know? So you do have to kind of go through this moment of uh, this is, this is failing at some essential level. And, and that can be very dispiriting. And if you're the further you're into the book, the more dispiriting it feels. If you don't yet know how to resolve it, that's dispiriting. Mm. So, and, and you can have, you, you have, it's, you know, it's a, it's a crisis of confidence. Well, you I've pressed had, on though. You pressed on, which is an, an inherently, I mean, there's a great Calvin Coolidge line about the power of persistence. You may know that one, but you've clearly no. demonstrated that in your art. It's yep. just it, the you. only omnipotent uh, force uh, in the mortal universe anyway, is, is persistence, the power of yeah. persistence and pressing on. So as you pull up all your pegs and restart back at page one, that's what I'm what I'm picturing my favorite of your characters in part because he's so dang precocious and innocent and wise and endearing is Billy, uh, the eight year old brother of the protagonist. Billy has read a certain book focused on heroism. Professor Abacus Abernathy's Compendium of Heroes, Adventurers and Other Intrepid Travelers. He's read it over 20 times. He's an eight year old kid. It retells the stories of Ulysses and Theseus and Galileo. And Edison. And it sounds like a really inspiring book, even though you completely yeah. invented the book and its fictional author. Yeah. W- would you discuss the inspiration and thought process behind specifically the creation of Billy in the Lincoln Highway? What do you hope readers take away from his role in the novel? Uh, you know, from an artistic process standpoint, I think that a lot of, uh, I think that many writers would, would, would say this at some, in some way. As you're inventing a story, there's an unconscious dynamic where you're constantly creating balance without really thinking about it. Meaning, you know, if you create a character who's very dangerous and angry and you start to think about the other characters, you're going to meet, there's a sort of a, a subconscious pull to, to create someone who is milder, more innocent, more, you know, honest or whatever as a counterbalance to see how those forces interact but also to give the reader a sense of balance as they read. And I say, I don't, I don't think about this mathematically in any way, but it tends to happen. And, and it happens in a thousand different ways. And, but having invented this story where at the heart of these 18 year old young man and an 18 year old woman, and in this moment of turmoil, as they're trying to become adults and, and taking on responsibility and making decisions and taking risks and making bad choices and all these things, it just felt so natural to tie Emmett to a brother who was younger, but actually much younger, you know, eight years old, where all of those dynamics of being 18 are you're as far from them as possible, you know, where the eight-year-old has no responsibilities in the real sense, has, no, has not been jaded yet, has not uh, become disappointed with the world or with themselves or with others, and is still asking questions and, and sort of in a wide-eyed awe of, around them. And and so you kind of, the, the invention of Billy kind of, in a way, I guess I say, grows out of this process of, of thinking about the bigger sort of cast of characters. And, and that's who's needed, you know, and, and the, just, by the way, that's what we need in life too, is that kid in the room, you know, uh, uh, because that, that young point of view uh, is something that as 18 year olds, 30 year olds, 50 year olds, we remember it, but it's, it's, it's hard for us to kind of 
find it within ourselves. And but when in the company of an eight year old, we that we can feel that come back quite uh, strongly. You it's know, such uh, a beautiful dynamic in the novel, and I really. Um, the few times I cried, you're not trying to write a tearjerker, but when I read your books aloud, which is what I do to my wife, Margaret, occasionally I get emotional as I'm reading, and it was it was really Billy, and I think his story that, that most touched me. I think part of the beauty of eight different viewpoints is people can see themselves in Sally. They can see themselves, God forbid, in some of the other characters, and, yeah. and it really is such an important dynamic to the reading experience. Um, I'm curious about Billy. Well, actually... Do you yourself have an office in the Empire State Building? <laughs> no, because yeah, <laughs> Professor, Professor Abernathy has an office in the, in, the, in the Empire State Building. I do not. Okay. It sounds like I, a good place to have one, though. Right? As, as I read to Margaret, we were both throwing, he was, Amor, hang out in the Empire State Building and hope kids come visit him. Um, did you intend from the start to have Abernathy not just enter the novel Willy Wonka-esque, but, but even be one of your voices? Uh, no, so he would be the last voice the I last, added. yeah. I mean, and I... Uh, and I, it's that, and I, that may even have been second draft that often happens where you kind of finish and you're like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if at this moment we heard from that other person or we had this incremental scene and, uh, and, and that, uh, and I, I I love, I love the Abernathy chapter. He only has one and uh, what's interesting about it. And again, thinking about this sort of balanced dynamic of, of invention is he's the one older person we really hear from. You know, we're hearing from all this, we got all this young energy, sort of young, as they say, risk-taking and exploration and, 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 and raw, you know, passion from all these various characters. And, but Abernathy is at the other end of the, of life, you know, and, uh, clearly in, in, at least in his sixties. And, and that is sort of, I think provides this sort of nice moment where you sort of have this, oh, it's the same world that we're operating in, but he's looking at it from the other end and, uh, and, you know, what is, what influences he had on the coming generation through the book that Billy is reading, but then what potential influence could they have on him, you know, at that moment, at the, at the very tail end of his life. And, uh, and I, so I find that a very beautiful chapter and it, maybe it's it cause I'm an old guy. <laughs> so am I, but it, that, that day, that one long day spent yes. in New York is I, to me, the centerpiece of, of the novel and really, right. really beautiful to bring the cast of characters together in the way that you did. No spoilers. Um, What's something, Amor, in this book that your reviewers and or interviewers just seem to have brushed over or missed altogether that you'd like to point out now so my full readers will not miss by dint of me asking this question what people are missing still about this book? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll, give a, I'll, give a, <laughs> I'll give two answers to this. Um, the, you know, the first one is it's interesting how reviewers – particularly professionals, you know, professional reviewers, professional editors, uh, you know, professional uh, interviewers, not you, David, but, but <laughs> certainly it's, not. It, it's amazing. It's amazing to me for, uh, in a way uh, how rarely they will talk about the writing itself. And, uh, but readers talk about it all the time, mm. you know? And, and so that it's one of the satisfactions of, of, you know, if a reader goes to amortolls.com, they can send me their comments or their thoughts and, and, uh, you know, you're, you're putting your time into in very, it's not inventing the story. It's, it's crafting the individual sentences and the paragraphs. And, and so, but, you know, it's so funny, like, of course, and I get it. If you're a reviewer where you're reading 300 books a year and you're writing 60 reviews, you know, you're, you it's just like, you don't even pay attention practically, you know? So you have this sort of irony where the professionals in a way have the least artistic 
perspective on your work, you know, whereas the readers can have a very profoundly artistic perspective on your work. Um, so thank you for that, readers. You're welcome. And I really <laughs> love that on behalf of all readers that we do care. And where we're headed next uh, is I have a few of my favorite bits that I'm oh. just going to share back the actual writing and ask you that we did this five years ago as well. Yeah. Just ask you to riff on them some, but you had a second answer to my Oh yeah, my meta question. Well, yeah. So I I think this is, is is fun, and I don't expect readers to pick this up, but 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 for those who haven't, you may enjoy knowing this, which is that while writing the Lincoln Highway, uh, I you know I picked mid the mid fifties for the reasons we discussed. It's set in I, I picked June because the whole thing has to sort of be moving towards the Fourth of July for very uh -huh. specific reasons. They're trying to get to a summer house before the family arrives, and and so they're you know they're running out of time. Uh, they said that they have to be there you know by the end of June, et cetera. So that kind of set the rules. All right, mid fifties, ten days. You know, towards the end of June is where it's going to culminate. And I'd written like, and I'm not joking. I'd written like eighty percent of the book, and suddenly I was like, wait a second, uh, gentleman, Moscow, this thirty year story. It ends in 1954 in June on the 21st of June. And so suddenly here I am writing this second book, which is taking place in June of 1954. You literally did not at all consciously recognize that until you Absolutely did 80% of the book. Absolutely not. And then it's because you're, you're, you're just thinking about it because, of course, a gentleman Moscow, I'm always like, it's a 30-year story. And mostly, you know, in a lot of the buildings in the 20s and the 30s. So I never like think about the fact that it ends in 54. And so, you know, so, but so anyway, that, so then I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I nudge things a little bit. And now the culminating of event of a gentleman Moscow, which is when all the uh, telephones in the hotel Metropole ring, occurs at midnight on the 21st of June, 1954, the culminating moment at the end of the book. Um, Lincoln Highway, the culminating moment is when Billy and Emmett get in a car and drive out of a driveway in the Adirondacks. And that happens on the 21st of June, 1954 as well at uh, 5 PM. But given the time change, <laughs> those things occur at the exact same moment in historical time. Brilliant. Now, it's as I say, I don't expect my, <laughs> certainly no reviewer ever noticed that. I don't expect my, you know, the readers to notice it, but I, I don't even, I don't frankly even know what it means, but I love the fact that these, Two totally different stories end at the exact same moment in historical time. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That is a true <laughs> Easter egg that that emerged uh, from this conversation. I appreciate that. Amor, as I mentioned, well, last time when we talked through a gentleman, I had a lot of fun just bandying back to you. Some of my favorite lines of yours, hearing you riff on how you came up with it. Let's play that game again, shall we? Okay. I have four. All right, yeah, because last time I said that novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, shows off Tolls' two superhero powers, and one of them I have down as, this is just my viewpoint, of course, to turn delightful phrases. The second, to paint magical pictures. But let's go to delightful phrase number one. Here we go. I'm going to quote, there is nothing so enigmatic as the human will, or so the head shrinkers would have you believe. According to them, the motivations of a man are a castle without a key. They form a multi-layered labyrinth from which individual actions often emerge without a readily discernible rhyme or reason, but it's really not so complicated. If you want to understand a man's motivations, all you have to do is ask him, what would you do with $50,000? End quote. Yes, Duchess. <laughs> okay, so the, the game is, is I respond. <laughs> it really isn't a game, admittedly, but what it is, it's an opportunity for me just to put forward some of the the insights that you wrap into delightful phrasing. Um, and I, I feel like this is Amor 
but he'll insert it in that character or that one in this or that novel. So I feel like these are your insights that you somehow salt and pepper in, and and I love sharing them back and hearing you, hearing you riff. Yeah. So le- so let me clarify the the most important thing I can say about this right off the bat, which is that uh, ninety. And I probably said this when we when we last spoke, but ninety five percent of the time when a reader says to me, "Oh, this passage was so insightful or it meant a lot to me," <laughs> it's whatever. Whatever. Ninety five percent of the time, it is something which I would never have thought in the course of my personal life. So I wouldn't say it to my children. I wouldn't ah. write it in my journal. I wouldn't. It wouldn't say it to a friend. What's happened is that through fiction, you you create an individual. I create an individual who I am not who has a different background and a different psychology. And I'm going to put that individual in a circumstance in which I've never been. And so suddenly while writing that, that event, while the, that character with that background is in that moment of time going through this particular experience, they will suddenly say, you know, the thing about it is da 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 And usually when it comes, it's really fast. And I'll usually like hit the period key on the typewriter and say, well done, Duchess. Wow. That's a really interesting thought, you know, and, but that's the way those things do tend to come. And uh, so, yeah, you know, this is a good example. And of course the, the, the insights that Duchess have about the world are radically different than the insights that Emmett has Indeed. about the world or that Billy, because that's a part of the whole thing of a personality and of a background. He grew up in a rough part of New York. He's, you know, he had uh, his father was sort of a drunken charlatan con man actor, and and he was surrounded by drunken charlatan performers, and and so his view of the world is is so extremely different, and so it's so natural for him. Of course, he wouldn't take Freudian psychology seriously, and of course, he's probably ended up in front of psychiatrists, <laughs> you know, at, at various times in his life without his, you know, against his will, and thinks they're all ridiculous. Head and, shrinkers, yes, head shrinkers for Christ's sake, and so uh, and I think I had to go back and double check that that word was existed in 1954, you know, but it did, you know, but so, but anyway, so he, uh, and, and so you're kind of inhabiting that personality. Of course, you're going to look at that. And so then he comes up with this other very simple test is what would you do with 50 grand? You know, which of course in 1954 is a, is a, is a bigger number than it is today. You know, what meaningful, but, and he, as he said, you know, there, uh, the people who think about it, you can kind of disregard them. You know, because it means, you know, if they haven't even, they don't even, they don't even know the answer yet, it's, it's because they have basically lived an unexamined life where they've accepted their circumstances. You know, it's the guy, it's the person who's known all along. That's where it gets interesting. Mm. You know? And, and they won't even necessarily tell you, but you can tell from their expression that, you know, that they know exactly what they would do with the money. And so anyway, so he kind of uses this as a sort of a way of, of dividing people, but, you know, those who, who are worthy of his respect and admiration versus those who, you know, deserve maybe his, his, his disdain may be too strong, but, but his indifference perhaps. You know. And that is a very accurate view of how Duchess sees the world. I, I think that jumped out to me from a Motley Fool context, because I think a lot of us in fooldom do think that money counts for something in this world. It's not evil or bad. It's a tool. And so asking, pick your number, a million dollars maybe these days to inflation adjust, asking anybody, what would you do with a million dollars really is a great window of insight, whether or not they're telling the truth about what they're saying, even in their own minds, they may be fooling themselves, but it's, it's a really fun catalytic question. Let's go to number two. Yeah. Uh, again, just reading straight from the book here, quote, now and then it seemed to Wooly, in the course of your everyday life, you're likely to be blessed 
with a notion. Say, for instance, it's the middle of August, which, by the way, it is, which is part of the reason I'm sharing this. Say, for instance, it's the middle of August and you're drifting in your rowboat in the middle of the lake with the dragonflies skimming the water when suddenly the thought occurs to you, why doesn't summer vacation last until the 21st of September? After all, the season doesn't come to its conclusion on Labor Day weekend. The season of summer lasts until the autumnal equinox, just as surely as the season of spring lasts until the summer solstice. And look at how carefree everyone feels in the middle of summer vacation. Not only the children, but the grown-ups too, who take such pleasure in having a tennis game at 10, a swim at noon, and a gin and tonic at six o'clock on the dot. It stands to reason that if we all agreed to let summer vacation last until the equinox, the world would be a much happier place, end quote. Now, is that Wooly speaking or is that actually Amor speaking? No, that's Wooly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and of course, what, uh, what, what the, 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 as you know, what comes next. So Wooly is, is 19 years old uh, and is he's sort of a lost soul. He was raised in a wealthy family. Uh, his father died in the Second World War. His mother has remarried and moved to Palm Beach and he grew up in, in, in a wealthy family where there was a great richness to the family life, where everybody would gather in the summer together and, and spend times together. And that, and that meant a great deal to him. And what's happened as he's grown from a boy to you know, a young adult is it's all kind of come unwound. As I say, the father's died, the mother's moved to Florida, you know, the, the great grandfather who sat at the head of the table is gone. But then his sisters have, you know, re, have married and, and his closest relative, his, uh, the, the, his sister, who's a little older than him, is now pregnant and so uh, is going to have a family of her own. And so each of these steps is sort of a, a step taking Wooly farther from the fond memories of his mm. youth, uh, where he, which he loves so much, into this world where he doesn't really feel like he has a place. And so it's sort of a tragic uh, sort of dynamic for him. And, uh, and so in that quote, He's obviously he's, he's taught, and he has this great sort of whimsical way of of seeing the world that is his own. You know, he's not he's not like his parents, or he's not going to go get a job on Wall Street. And he, and so this sort of brings together a variety of these things. He has a sort of great whimsical notion of wait, why why does summer end? You know, on on Labor Day, why wouldn't it end on the twenty first? And then like, because isn't summer the best? Why wouldn't we? Why would we all benefit? Not just me. We'd all benefit from summer being a couple weeks longer, right? You know, so like, he's got that. But then what happens, and this is which David doesn't read, uh, is uh, is that he says he opens by saying you got to be careful when you have these kinds of notions. He goes because if you share these notions. What's going to happen is that someone is going to sit you down, you know, and it's going to be your, you know, your uncle, your father, you know, the, 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 your teacher, the headmaster, and they're going to basically explain to you, you know, why, you know, your idea is not such a good idea, you know, and, and why, you know, the, the, the real, the practicalities of life are going to start to be expressed, you know. And so that's sort of the other side of this moment, which is that on the one hand, it's a chance for Willie to kind of share this great generous, whimsical sort of insight, you know, where we'd all be happier if, but then, you know, kind of knowing that on the other side of it is that, you know, if you do share this, they're going to come and squash it, you know, and that's, you know, where he is, right? He has these notions, but he knows that the the world is going to tell him that it's the wrong idea again and again and again. Part of his story is that he gets kicked out of three different prep schools, one of which yes. is one that I went to and graduated from. So that's yes. kind of extra funny. And I know you and I share our respective prep schools uh, battled on 
green fields across many different sports, Noble and Greeno and St. Mark's. You chose St. Mark's to inject in the novel. Willie gets kicked out of St. Mark's. Why does Noble and Greeno not make a show in this novel? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Too self-referential? <laughs> Maybe it's I mean, too the school was started in 1866, so uh, I mean, surely. Well, one reason, I mean, it's, some of these things are technical, <laughs> is I, the school, I did go to a, a private New England school, but it was not a boarding school. So uh, it is I'd forgotten that. that. Yes, it's important that while that Willie, the nephew of Wallace Wilkett, go to a, a boarding school. Yeah. Um, and yes, and, and and he the trouble he gets into is that by mistake he burns down <laughs> the goalposts at the football field as, at St. Mark's School in Southport, Massachusetts. Yeah. And as you know, as, as David and I were talking about this yesterday, I you know I, I only in that conversation, David, yesterday for the first time did it occur to me that the reason this is what Willie does and uh, is. Uh, it's because I hated sports in high school. <laughs> and so this is clearly some sort of passive aggressive thing of me burning down the football. Now, so the other thing that is, this is true. And, you know, I, uh, you know, some of you may know this, if you like, I was, I was, had the good fortune of being on Seth Meyers and we talked about this, but uh, is when a book of mine comes out, usually through my website, people will send me corrections within about seven days of a book coming out. Seven and, days. And within one of the, the first, I think it was the first correction I received, and it's a, it was a doozy, really, is that the description of, of Willie, by mistake, setting this goalpost on fire, um, he describes, you know, this, the, when it, all the flames are, it's like a guy with his hands up in the air, like a giant, you know, in the shape of a giant Y, and it looks like this, you know, exultant figure, and he's really wowed by it, and uh, he thinks it's a beautiful thing. And yes, as many of your listeners have already queued in on this, <laughs> yes, I received an email saying, excuse me, Mr. Tolls, but in 1954, the football goalpost did not look like a Y, it looked like an H. Yes. And so yes, that is true historically. And so that <laughs> from the trip from hardcover to paperback, Willie's experience shifted. Oh my, okay, so yes. there's revision. So, yes, so the, that, has been, that has been fixed. Well, Thank it's you nice much. to know that you listen to people through your website and you make changes. That's what yes. we're all trying to do in life. Yeah. I've got two more of my faves. Of course, there's so many great passages. Let me share two more. Here's the third. The clothes make the man or so the saying goes, but all you have to do is look at a row of fedoras to know what a bunch of baloney that is, gather together a group of men of every gradation, from the powerhouse to the pots, have them toss their fedoras in a pile, and you'll spend a lifetime trying to figure out whose was whose, because it's the man who makes the fedora, not versa vice. I mean, wouldn't you rather wear the hat worn by Frank Sinatra than the one worn by Sergeant Joe Friday? I should hope so, end quote. I can tell you're a Duchess fan, you know, because it's another I mean, Duchess. I, I love, I love the Damon Runyon-esque kind of, yeah. um, and obviously you do too. And I think that you were a thespian in high school if you weren't an athlete. Am I right about that? No, no. You were not. No, no, I was a techie, like even worse. Love it. <laughs> but so, uh, and I was actually, I was the man, I was two, I was the manager of the girls' soccer team. That's true. That was that. That was one of my love athletic it. requirements. And uh, I was also on uh, uh, the croquet team. So yes, they, my Latin teacher, Mark Harrington, uh, could tell that like four of us had, you know, we just hated sports. <laughs> so he agreed to launch a croquet team for us, which was, which was good fun. Fantastic. Uh, which is a way of skirting the requirement. <clears throat> but um, so in this passage, Duchess is in uh, a wealthy home. Duchess was not wealthy as a child. He's in, he's in uh, Wallace, uh, Willie's sister's home where she's married to like a Wall Streety guy. And he's looking at his closet and that's where he's making the assessment. I think, you know, one of the things I, I, about this passage, I remember seeing a photograph, I think it was in the New York times 
uh, from their archive. And it was, say, it was the 1940s or 50s, is in that f- period. And everyone had gathered in Times Square for, because they used to do this, because news, you would wait for news. Let's say there was a battle in the Second World War, the Times would mm. post the news on a giant, you know, board, uh, you know, script, an electric uh, board as it was happening. This could happen in the World Series or a, a, a major boxing bout, um, you know, before television, before television. So this would be people would gather to see the, the, news. Real, the, the news, to see the real time things. And I remember seeing this photograph and what really stands out about it is that every single person, and that's like a thousand people, 5,000, whatever, is wearing a fedora, you know, every guy. Right. And you and like, what, what an amazing moment in time in American history. Right. You know, like, like, like every guy, the poor guy, the rich guy, they're all in a, in a freaking fedora. Yeah. And which is a great look, by the way, you know, and we, yeah. you know, we saw it in Mad Men. Right. Don, John Hamm looks so good in a fedora. You bet. Um, and, and, you know, we see that in looking at the in the movies of the 30s, the film noir with Bogart and those guys, they're all wearing fedoras. So so they're sort of this sort of uh, my memory of that, you know, like what a wild thing that was. Like, you know, we, we don't have anything that's quite like that. Maybe the baseball cap kind of has become that. God forbid, you know, God save us. Or, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, so so, yeah, I, I, I so then you're kind of I'm imagining him in again. It's I'm, I'm, Duchess is the guy in the room. It's Duchess's background. He's looking at the fedora. And so that comes from him, sort of like suddenly being like, wait a second. Yeah, the friggin' hat, it's the same. But do you want to be Bogarty? Do you want to be Joe Friday? You know, which guy do you want to be? Yeah. And, uh, and, the, and the answer should be obvious. Frank but, Sinatra. Well me. said. I mean, we, I, I obviously grew up in an era past the fedora. It's amazing to think about. There's some aspect of conformity there that obviously was also yes. present in society. But Correct. the notion that everybody was wearing of every single gentleman, gentleman of every gradation, as you wrote, wearing a fedora is kind of amazing. Uh, before we go to my final quote, um, Mark Twain, great line about clothes making the man. Maybe you know this one. Amor, if you don't, you're about to. Mark Twain, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society, <laughs> which continues to be true today. All right, here's one more Tolls quote. Shared with Tolls, asking Tolls for insight. When we're young, so much time is spent teaching us the importance of keeping our vices in check, our anger, our envy, our pride. But when I look around, it seems to me that so many of our lives end up being hampered by a virtue instead. If you take a trait that by all appearances is a merit, a trait that is praised by pastors and poets, a trait that we've come to admire in our friends and hope to foster in our children, and you give it to some poor soul in abundance, it will almost certainly prove an obstacle to their happiness. Just as someone can be too smart for their own good, there are those who are too patient for their own good or too hardworking. Yeah. End quote. Yeah, Sarah says that. And, uh, you know, and Sarah is Willie's older sister. And as I said, she, he's sort of this tragic figure and she knows it. And she's a little older than him. And, you know, so obviously when she was probably 15 he was a younger boy and she cared for him and that kind of thing and uh and and loves him but she's now pregnant and she's about to have her own kid she's got her husband and and willie gets into trouble and so you know uh she can't control that or fix it and and so that's what spawns you know that's what launches this conversation is she's thinking about or talking about her younger brother and uh 
And and then so then again, that comes out of writing the scene. That was something that you know. It's not like you invent that passage, right? You didn't premeditate that. No, you know, and it's 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 trying to imagine how would that older sister, uh, who is who's a very gentle person in her own right, you know, how would she talk about her younger brother and and the problems that he faces? And 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 of course, that's what she you know she recognizes that that uh, that he's he's too big hearted, you know, mm-hmm. and that. That and she knows it's he's going to probably pay a terrible price for that eventually. Uh, you know, it, it gets him into trouble and um, uh, all the time in different ways. And uh, and so that that great virtue in abundance, uh, you know, proves an obstacle to him. He should have, you know, if if only he were a little bit more practical, a little bit more hard edged, a little bit more, you know, whatever. Uh, and of course, built into this, and and the the Duchess who's listening. Uh, sorry, Emmett's listening, excuse me, puts this to, he can sense this, is that when she says, well, you know, you can also be too hardworking, she's kind of probably talking about her husband, mm-hmm. you know, who's kind of in the city and they have a plot in the city and he comes out, you know, he's working long hours and and is not as attentive or compassionate as you would like uh, in a husband or even a person. Um, and so, you know, she, she, so she's beginning to piece it together herself, right? She's looking at the, at her husband and her brother and and they both have a virtue, which is kind of out of control and uh, in, in a way. And, uh, you know, and that's a, it's a sort of a sad realization, right? You know, the whole book in some ways is hung on this difference between 18 and 19 or 8 and 28. And so, so I felt that in part because I think in high school, and we're talking about high school versus college, 18 versus 19. In high school, I think I was all about the virtues and the vices. And a lot of us are raised with, well, what's the opposite of greed? Uh, generosity. And what's the opposite of courage? Uh, cowardice. Virtues and vices. But it wasn't, I, I don't think until college, really, that the concept of the Aristotelian golden mean and a little bit more nuanced view of any virtue can be too much or a total absence of it. And we're finding the golden mean. And for me, that represents a simple cartoonish way of thinking about my own intellectual progression from high school to college. So maybe I'm just overclocking this point, but I feel as if it, it's somewhat captured there as well. This, this notion that these virtues that we were raised on, we can have too much of them and it can be our undoing. For sure. And, and, and this is very, uh, in the modern era, we, we look at the challenges that have come out of, of overparenting. Right. You know, which, again, is sort of this thing of, of, well, actually, if you let the kid in danger a little bit, you know, maybe that's to their advantage, you know, and that's sort of a tr- that's a that's a challenging thing to sort of think through. Right. Is that is that sometimes putting your child at risk is the way that you you give them the most ser- that, that you serve them best as a parent, as opposed to protecting them from the risk. Right. Yeah. And we're about to play our game buy, sell or hold to close. But I was thinking about Billy at one point, having put the book down, I was thinking, you know, Billy in 2023, eight-year-old kid, he's on his phone the whole time. This this darling view of him with Professor Abacus Abernathy's compendium of heroes, adventurers, and other intrepid travelers, this book that he's read, I think, 24 times, that old-school red book, that's just a phone today. And, and I'm not sitting in judgment of that. I spend as much time on my phone as my eight-year-old kids would have if they were eight, but they're 28. But anyway, yeah. you know, so it's just funny to think about taking these characters out of place and re-inject them into today's society and imagine how would they be rolling now? And that's where I see Billy with his phone. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> All right. Well, before we do play buy, sell, or hold, where I will be asking you about a few different things and say if they were stocks, which they're not, would you be buying, selling, or holding right now? I do 
have to ask you the perfunctory compulsory question. Is there another book coming, Amor? Oh, uh, thank you for asking. Um, I, I have a collection of short stories uh, that comes out in April called Table for Two. Table for Two. And that has uh, six stories, mostly set in contemporary New York City, uh, relatively contemporary New York City. But then it also has a, a 200-page novella uh, called Even Hollywood, which uh, is an expanded noirish tale uh, uh, that follows the character from Rules of Civility, Eve Evelyn Ross, to Hollywood in 1938. And so, as I say, that will be out in April. And I'm, I've started work on my new novel, but that'll come to you in a couple of years. Yeah, I, I was doing the math, 2011, 2016, yeah. 2021. I'm predicting 2026 for your next I month. hope, I, 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 26 <laughs> is the latest. I'd love to get out a little faster, but we'll see. Well, just don't get halfway through and decide you have to pull up the pegs. That's what happens every time. <laughs> All right, so buy, sell, or hold. These are not stocks, but they are investments, number one. These are not stocks, but they are investments. Buy, sell, or hold, fine art and antiques. Wow. Um, and I ask in part because on your Wikipedia page, which I like to fact check for well-known people, yes. it says Tolls is a collector of fine art and antiques. First of all, is that true? Second, buy, sell, or hold fine art and antiques. Yeah. That, that's, an, that's an overstatement by the press, <laughs> which, is, which is fine. Because a lot of my, our collection, my wife and I, like, is, is from junk shops. You know, like We love 19th century paintings bought in furniture stores. Like If you go find an antique furniture store in Paris or whatever, <laughs> they have oil paintings on the wall from the 19th century. Which they like, they don't, they're, 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 you can buy for almost nothing, right? You know, because they're just sort of like decoration to them. Um, but they have all the, the, the flavor and character, and they could be in the Impressionist style, they can be in the pre Impressionist style, whatever. And so, another so world. A lot of our collecting is, is of that came. But I would say this, and I, this is not going to come as a surprise to any of your listeners it's definitely a hold category <laughs> in, in the sense that, I mean, to, to relative to say a stock or a bond, you know, a work of art, a piece of furniture is something that actually you get to live with and enjoy, right? I mean, that's really the whole point, right? So you, you, there's no, I, I'm, we are very much collector. We are collectors of the kind that everything that we have quote unquote collected is in use. Mm. Like having something that is velvet roped or in storage or, you know, in a vault, like that makes no sense, you know, to us in this category. Love it. And, and if, you know, if, if one of these things turns out to, you know, to pay for itself down the road, that's terrific, you know, and, uh, and we do keep a little bit of an eye on that, but mostly it's about the hold, you know. Well said. Next one, uh, two of five. Number two. Buy, sell, or hold the use of quotation marks in dialogue in works of fiction of the 22nd century. <laughs> it's a sell for Amor, apparently. You <laughs> yeah, know, because I... <laughs> you wrote the entire book without quotation marks for yeah. all of your dialogue, and I had to ask you about that because, yeah. again, somebody reading it aloud, fresh, sometimes I got a little bit tripped up, but I decided this is a genius. This is an artistic genius who's made an intentional decision to exclude quotation marks. Why? Yeah, you know, so and and it's but rules of civility has no quotation marks. Uh, Lincoln Highway has none. Even Hollywood is is none. It uses, it uses the M dash instead. So it's a sort of a long dash to indicate that somebody is about to speak or is is speaking. And now, and by the way, like you know, the French don't use quotation marks. Ah. Quotation marks are you know, there's other languages where quotation marks are not uh, the 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 preferred grammatical uh, tool for indicating conversation. Um, but here's, here's why I ditched them in rules of civility in the Lincoln highway, <laughs> Please, which, and this is the cell. This is part of the cell argument, which is, which is that the whole point of quotation marks in English, the whole point 
is so that a narrator can interrupt someone who's talking and provide some kind of qualification to what they're saying. So, you know, that's the point because it says, you know, quotation mark, um, oh, you know, mother, I would love to stay for dinner, quotation mark, comma, you know, he said with one eye on the door and, you know, <laughs> and thoughts of Marie, you know, and then, you know, and then quotation mark, uh, you know, what time is dinner served? You know, you know, so, so the whole point is that, is that that's what quotation marks are for is so that you can, you can actually stop the conversation in the middle, shove something in the middle as a narrator that tells us what the person was thinking, what they were feeling, you know, what was the expression on their face, whatever it is, yeah, is to, is to shape the reader's impression of that conversation. Right. Mm. And when I was writing rules of civility, it was really bothering me. I was, I was, I felt like this, the freedom to step in and make these sort of tell the reader what was going on was, was interfering with the pace of the book, with the sharpness of it, with the modernity of it. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to pull out the quotation marks, use the M dash, and then you don't have the freedom of making those insertions. Uh, Certainly not with the same frequency or in the same, uh, you have to be very careful about it. So instead, you have to spend a lot of time setting up the scene so that once the conversation starts, the reader kind of knows what people are, what they sound like. I what get their it. Expression ways. And, it, and it has this kind of internal energy and a little bit of a cleanness to it. Almost so, so, sort of like in the way that Hemingway might write dialogue without these insertions, you know, and, uh, and, and so it sort of provides to that quality. So anyway, so that's that, that the, the real sell is on this authorial intrusion. Uh, I get it now. Which, which, which can, I think, in, in not in all novels, but in some can undermine the, the sort of the, the sharpness of and the artistic quality of the work. So by the 22nd century, enough other people will be, will have gotten this, will be part of your school that we'll, we'll do. Yes. So sell these things ahead of time, quotation yes. marks. Yeah. Appreciate Very that. And here I am burnt again for not having read Rules of Civility, and I know yes. a lot of fans are going to chastise me for that. And your novella and your next book is in part tied back to your first work. So shame on me for not knowing that the Rules of Civility indeed had no quotation marks. But Lincoln Highway didn't. I was used, of course, to Gentleman Moscow, which you did. But we'll yeah. talk about that another time, why you would have done that. Then let's go to number three, Buy, Sell, or Hold. And I have to ask this. It's the chat GBT. I have to ask this question of 2023. Amor tolls buy, sell, or hold artificial intelligence being recognized as instrumental in the creation of great fiction in our lifetimes. Oh, that's grim. That's a grim question, you know, because it's one of these things as an investor, right? You know, it, it's. Hey, you, you write you, some grim novels occasionally, or grim well. chapters. I, I can be grim. Because you know, you, you, maybe it's it's a buy in the sense that it's going to start to have a bigger and bigger influence. It's hard to imagine it not, but it's a sell from a spiritual moral sense. You know what I mean? Like, oh, right. Well, you know, uh, I, I, it's going to be very interesting to see. And and uh, I, I'm uh, you know a good friend of mine. I nine months ago, as Chat BT was you know or whatever it's called was was growing in in uh, sort of into the popper con- con- conscious. We were having a debate at dinner about how effective it is. And, and, you know, my friend said, uh, you know, this thing is much more powerful than you think it is. And, and he said, so by example, he said, I've just put into my phone, you know, what are the first three pair? And we were at a dinner having fondue. He said, what are the three first three paragraphs of Amor Tolls' new novel, which takes place during a fondue dinner? And he just, you know, read, and, and, you know, two seconds later, he's reading these three paragraphs, that which have never existed before, which have never existed. that are clearly in 
the tone of, it was interesting. It was clearly the, the, the tool had used a gentleman Moscow, not Lincoln highway to craft this. You could tell mm-hmm. because that's the, you know, because it has to pick right in a way what the, what the, the tonality is going to be, what the vocabulary is going to be, what the style. And it was amazing. Right. And now it, it, it was flawed in many Yeah, But in ways. part, because it took three seconds yes. to insta generate. Yes. So right? are there going to be young writers who, who use this to generate a chapter and then write over it? to their own taste or their own style. I'm sure in their journalism is, you know, this is being uh, explored in, in journalism uh, right now. Uh, it's being explored in the law. Um, it's hard to imagine it, it not um, having power. I have a good friend, uh, Hugh Howey, uh, who wrote, writes science fiction. He wrote uh, the book, which is now Silo for those fans okay. of that Apple TV series. It was originally called wool. It's the, the book he wrote. And so he is a big, he's very, he's a buy guy in this category you know i i'm I, i'm a, too afraid to buy the category but he's a buyer <laughs> and but he, he, to make it we were together this summer and and he had said he said well, this is what happened last night i was in bed he was we were in bed with my, my wife and i and just to pass the time uh you know as I, we gave a long instruction to he was using a different version sure. of chappie tv there the, are many you know, the, his preferred one the instruction was more than it was maybe a page and, but the instruction was invent a new religion and uh, please provide when you do so uh, the origin story in the religion, uh, the ethics of the religion, um, you know, some, you know, some of the tenets of the religion, you know, some of the parables of the religion. And two seconds later, it comes back and it says, uh, I think it's like called harmonium and harmonium is based on the notion that all in existence is in harmony which we can't, we may not be able to see. And he said, and it, and it says, so the, the origin story is in the beginning, there was the chord, you know, and that the chord was a universal sound, which spread through the universe vibrating and, you know, whatever. And then, and from that became, you know, whatever, and then it builds, you know, from the chord to the phrase, to the, to the harmony, to the symphony, right. And that the universe is the symphony. And, and then, you know, in the morals, it goes on to like, it has like 10 or t- five or 10 tenets, all based on because all things are in harmony. Um, number one should be that you know we as individuals we must learn to hear the harmony of the universe I and can, appreciate the music. I, I can buy into that of life, right? And then it goes down to saying, well, because we are all created from the from the original harmony, we can find harmony within ourselves. We if we fail to, that's a failing. But we need to find the harmony within each other. And it's like, and, and he was like. I would, be, I, I join this religion tomorrow. You know, he's like, this is the best thing, the best religion I've ever heard. You know, and he wasn't giving himself credit. He's giving the machine credit. Anyway, yeah, so the point well, being but, that, so people, you, smart writers will be using this in, in generative ways. Like, you know, what, what if, if Hugh was going to build a futuristic society now, he could totally take the, the harmonium concept and build it into his novels as a, as a part of the greater thing that he's creating. And, 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 you know, and he just, you know, it's so, so yeah, you can use it as a generative device. That was one heck of a great answer to a buy, sell, hold question that I had to ask, of course, given yeah, of course. who I'm speaking to and when we're speaking uh, two more for you, Amor. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. Uh, second to last one, uh, buy, sell or hold Amor tolls making a Hitchcock like appearance in the Showtime series, a gentleman in Moscow. You know, I, I I would have loved it in a way, and uh, I did not ask. Uh, it did not come up. I am not in the series now. Part of what ended up happening is that uh, 
I was there uh, twice. The second time I was there, which is when that might have happened, if I'd asked, is it was it was very toward the end of shooting, and uh, at in that week, all, all the scenes were uh, two or three people. So when an author gets to you know gets to show up in a in a movie, it's usually you have twenty to, or like, thirty ask, people. Yeah, you have to ask on a day like that where there's a whole bunch of people sitting in a restaurant, and you're a duke. All right. So I'm I'm not in it. Well, thank you for. I mean, that's the only spoiler that we're going to give about the coming television streaming version of your novel. Feel free to post your complaints online (laughs) when when the time comes. Amortolls.com. Hashtag Paramount Plus. Where the hell is Tolls or whatever? (laughs) We know whatever. All right. Last one for you. Uh, Buy, sell, or hold a Tolls novel set in the 20s or 50s of the future, of the next century, mm. instead of, every time, Amor, the past, buy, sell, or hold, a futuristic Tolls novel. I, you know, I, I, as I say, I'm, I, I'm designing stories all the time. I have many stories that I've designed but have not written. And, you know, one of those is a futuristic piece uh, in sort of a, a futuristic version of New York. Um, and, uh, I, I would definitely consider doing that project at some point. Um, you know, I, and I, I don't, and it's sort of a little bit of a mystery of why I choose what to do when I do it. But, well, in uh, part you're choosing, uh, I won't say that you're hot dogging. Cause if I were to use that phrase, it's in only the most positive way, but anybody who sets himself a challenge and then comes at the next one from a completely different angle, I'm not going to predict this, but I could imagine that you might say, why wouldn't I set one in the future? Now, I will say in yeah. conclusion that as I thought about what fiction means in the future, and I even had a little conversation with ChatGPT about this, um, I was like, you know, it seems like everything set in the future would be labeled as science fiction. I mean, is by definition, are we in science fiction if we're writing something set in the future? And I was corrected uh, by ChatGPT to be reminded that it's not all science fiction per se. There's a second popular futuristic genre that something might fall into. It's called dystopian fiction. And then I said, okay, ChatGPT, give me a work of a popular work set in the future of fiction that is neither science fiction nor dystopian fiction. And it was very hard to come up with any examples of that at all. And I think that says something about what we humans do with the future. We create fear around it. We think it's worse, even though so often it's proved better. I'm not sure if there's a new genre anymore, but there's a thought for you. Yeah, I, I guess clearly, I think futurist would be the, the, the term that, you're, that we're going around, which is someone writing about the future, but without it being about robots or spaceships and without it being- Apocalyptic. Post, yeah, post-nuclear attack yeah, or Yeah, post-apocalyptic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, you know. And so, but, uh, but I, you know, the, the futurist, uh, so just writing about, about events in the future where, where it's not tech driven, I think, you know, is, is, is certainly a rich area for consideration. All right. Let's call it right there. Amor, it's been five years. I hope it won't be five years again till we next talk. I, I, I'm already circling 2026 on my calendar, knowing <laughs> that's the latest it could possibly be. Thank that's you right. so much for joining us once again. And we send you our foolish best wishes. Thanks for having me back, David. Real pleasure. Wow. All right, well, next week is Mailbag. Now, traditionally, the Mailbag is there for you to reflect on the month that has been. We've covered four books, Neil King Jr.'s American Ramble, Sonny Vanderbeck's Selling Without Selling Out, and then Jordan Ellenberg's How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. We can add to that mix this week Amor Tolls and his book, 
the Lincoln Highway. If any of these books or interviews stimulated a thought, a question, a challenge, all are welcome. RBI at fool.com is our email address. Were you inspired to think you should make a ramble somewhere? Is math really, in your mind, even more powerful as a language than your spoken tongue? Or maybe you're going to avoid a regret you would have had because you're in the midst of selling your business and Sonny said something that would help you. Or maybe, just maybe, you're thinking of driving from New York City to San Francisco. RBI at fool.com. I look forward to our mailbag next week. Of course, you can tweet us at RBI Podcast on X. You know, in conclusion, last time, five years ago, I think I made too much of it, this idea that this Wall Street guy, this banker, all of a sudden became a world-class writer. Amor alluded to this lightly this time, but he began writing fiction in first or second grade. Around the age of his eight-year-old character, his precocious Billy, yeah, Amor was there, purely internally motivated writing fiction. He kept doing so through school, into college, and past graduate school at Stanford. So becoming a full-time author, which was aided and abetted by gentlemen in Moscow for Amor, has been, as he once said, great fun being a full-time author. And you could, you could hear his deep enjoyment and fulfillment from his craft in his voice. And as this is an audio-only podcast, that's all I can share with you through a podcast. But since we do most of our interviews on Zoom and we can see each other, it was a pleasure to see him light up as we shared some of his passages together and some of his reflections on his characters. He's somebody deeply internally motivated by a love of what he's doing. It's something we can all try to match or at least learn from. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.